You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Tonight we walk the halls of our little after-hours club here to a room filled with some very old exhibits. A room where we can ponder a peculiar fascination. The practice of making human effigies in wax. In Europe in the Middle Ages when a monarch died, they would be placed fully dressed upon the top of their coffin and carried to their final resting place. But all it would take is a stumbling pallbearer or a particularly hot day to make this act of respect a far more gruesome and horrific affair when the deceased royal either toppled into the crowd or baked in the sun. So to guard against these disasters, wax copies of the deceased royal were made for these processions. But why make a whole body when you can just stuff their clothing with padding and insert a pair of wax hands and a wax head to complete the illusion? And even after the practice of placing this substitute body atop the coffin was ended, the wax mannequins were still made for people to come and view and pay their respects. And for a time the act of making these wax effigies was very much the domain of the royals of various countries. I guess you could say they were the celebrities of their day. In 1711, Fleet Street in London hosted the moving waxworks of the Royal Court of England. And in 1770, Philippe Curtis, waxwork modeler to the French court and teacher to Madame Tussaud, presented his cabinet de serre, or wax cabinet, to the people of France. But in an act of incredible foresight, he opened a special section of his museum that veered away from royal effigies to a more sinister subject, and this wing was christened the Cave of the Great Thieves. And in the end, while we might like wandering the wax museums of today, to look at the recreations of our favourite celebrities, aren't we really all there for those descendants of the Cave of the Great Thieves? They go by many names, the Chambers of Horrors, the Haunted Dungeons, or the Murderer's Row. This is Martin Sinescu, curator of Murderer's Row. You all right, honey? Sure, it's just they're so real. I, I thought... There's nothing to be afraid of. They're just a lot of wax. Perhaps not, young man. Who knows what evil lurks in the heart of the man standing next to you. But perhaps what is even more fascinating than these celebrations of the macabre themselves is how often they have captured the imagination of storytellers in short stories, radio plays, movies and television shows and we'll speak more about that later on. Because for now I invite you to follow me into the Fifth Dimension's very own Museum in Wax, because I would very much like to show you the new exhibit. Martin Lombard Sinescu, a gentleman, the dedicated curator of Murder's Row in Ferguson's Wax Museum. He ponders the reasons why ordinary men are driven to commit mass murder. What Mr. Sinescu does not know is that the groundwork has already been laid for his own special kind of madness and torment, found only in the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on the 4th of April 1963, written by Charles Beaumont, but there is a bit of a story behind that, and directed by John Brahm. Now how long has it been since we've been able to enthuse about how integrated into the scene Rod Serling was? It's been just about over a year on the podcast, but 
what an amazing opportunity this would have been to have sailing stood as if he was one of the exhibits or one of the people getting a tour of the exhibit. A real missed opportunity and unfortunately, that's what we get in season 4. Now as I said early on in the season, Rod sailing in his black suit in front of the grey background is still iconic cool, but I'm really starting to miss in the scene sailing. So our director tonight is John Brahm, and while season 4 has brought some new names into the director's chair, it's nice to welcome back an old favourite. This is the episode where John Brahm gets into double figures, with number 10 in his 12 episodes of The Twilight Zone. So if you want to talk mathematically, 7.69% of episodes were directed by John Brahm. But if we carry on with our mathematical train of thought, 100% of this episode was credited as being written by Charles Beaumont. But the percentage of words being spoken on the screen that were written by him is actually zero. If you've listened to the podcast for some time or immersed yourself in Twilight Zone lore, you will know of the sad fate of Charles Beaumont and how a degenerative illness robbed him of his ability to write and eventually his life. And several of his later Twilight Zone works were actually ghostwritten by other people. But with credits that run through all five seasons of the Twilight Zone, I've often wondered what the tipping point was. What was the point where it went from Beaumont writing 100% of his episodes to bringing those ghost writers in and I'm afraid it seems that tonight we've come to that point. On screen the episode is credited to Charles Beaumont but in the Twilight Zone companion by Mark Zickery he corrects the credit to give a more accurate picture. It says that the new exhibit was plotted by Charles Beaumont and Jerry Saul but written by Jerry Saul. Now there isn't a great deal of information out there about Jerry Saul. He was born in 1913 and he only has 16 screenwriting credits to his name, but there are some really nice credits on that list. He wrote the teleplay for four episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, he wrote two episodes of The Outer Limits, and three episodes of Star Trek, the original series, as well as three episodes of The Twilight Zone that were all credited to Charles Beaumont. But in addition to his screenwriting, Jerry Saul also wrote in excess of 20 novels, so he was no slouch as a writer. Now the best source of information for how this arrangement played out between Charles Beaumont and Jerry Saul is The Twilight Zone Companion. Now Mark Zickery goes really deep into this subject, there's about 3 or 4 pages on it, so I won't read it all out but I'll just try and give you a, the overview of what he actually says. Now he writes that Charles Beaumont's friend William F. Nolan said, he was never well, he was always thin, he almost always had a headache, he used bromo like somebody would use water, he had his bromo bottle with him all the time, he'd buy it in those giant sizes, what he called window sizes, and he'd empty one of those a month. Everyone kept saying, Chuck's working too hard, He's taking on too many jobs, he's stretching himself too thin, he's not sleeping enough, and the headaches got worse, and we thought well sure they'd get worse, if I was doing 70 scripts instead of 2, I'd have a headache too. Sometimes he'd have as many as 10 projects going on at once, in 62, he'd have like 5 different TV scripts, a movie script that he's supposed to be working on, and each one the producers thought Beaumont was working on exclusively. But meanwhile, he'd have O.C. Rich hold up in one part of the city writing a draft of one, he'd have Jerry Saul hold up writing a draft of another, John Tomlin would be writing a draft of a third, I'd be polishing a magazine article for him, he'd be trying to get the movie written, Ray Russell would be working with him on a Roger Corman project, and he'd just be running and running, making different appointments, he'd say, I'll be at Dupas and we'll have a 10 minute conference on the script, but I can't give you more than 10 minutes, because I've got to be over at Ray's at 4.30 to meet him. So you'd go, Chuck, Chuck, 
and you tried to fit yourself into this wild schedule. And I said to myself, man, he's just going to kill himself doing that. He was pushing himself way too hard. Nobody could survive that kind of pressure. And unfortunately, as a result of all this, Charles Beaumont began to drink heavily as well. And then William Nolan said, in the last half of 63, he couldn't write. He was drunk all the time, or so we thought. He would go out unshaven to meetings, and the meetings would be disastrous. He couldn't come up with ideas in front of producers. You'd have to have the ability to think on your feet. If they don't like the purple elephant, you better think of a red giraffe to throw in there. If you can't think of the red giraffe, the guy says, well, I don't want that purple elephant. What else you got? Chuck would say, I don't have anything else. And they'd say, well, we're sorry, Mr. Beaumont, but we don't like the script. And his son Christopher explained, because he worked very, very hard, we thought maybe it was just overwork. So we sent him to places where he could rest, hoping he would come back, the man that we knew. But he didn't. It was very frustrating, because we thought each time we tried out one of these therapies, that it would work. It was a great disappointment, every time he would come home from whatever it was, and he would not only be no better, he would be worse. So Charles Beaumont was eventually sent for tests, and the diagnosis said he was either suffering from Alzheimer's or Pick's disease, both of which had so much in common that the results were pretty much the same. And Charles Beaumont died on February 22, 1967, at the age of 38. And in the Twilight Zone companion, his son Christopher said, when he died, he was physically a 95-year-old man, and looked 95, and was. In fact, 95 by every calendar, except the one on your watch. So it's a very sad situation overall, the man who brought so much magic to the Twilight Zone, they're faded away in this way. But it's also sad to think now that any Charles Beaumont credited episodes that we get in the future won't be 100% his works. And I guess it's also an indication that here on our Twilight Zone journey, there are fewer episodes ahead than there are behind. But in our story, there are also few days ahead for Ferguson's Wax Museum. Martin, I'm abandoning the museum. Hmm? Abandoning? I'm afraid so. Oh. Is this a joke, sir? No. Oh, Mr. Ferguson. You can't do that. You mustn't. Uh, I know how you feel, Martin. Believe me, I do, but... I'm afraid there isn't any choice. I don't understand. I've been offered a large sum for this property. Some people want to build a, a supermarket here. A supermarket? Here, l let me get you a drink. It'll help settle you. No, no, no. No, please, I don't... When I first opened the museum 30 years ago, I never dreamed I'd see this day. But the day is here, Martin, and we will just have to face it. Now, personally, I'm not a great fan of just going to see celebrities created in wax, in wax museums, but I think there would probably be one exception to that rule. And that would, of course, be if there was a Twilight Zone wax exhibit. And it's something that very nearly happened when Rod Serling received a letter from the proprietor of a wax museum. Now, Martin Grams Jr. documents this in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, and the gist of the letter seemed to be that the proprietor was hoping for a mutual arrangement whereby a wax museum would feature on the Twilight Zone, but also characters from the Twilight Zone would feature in their museum. Now, it seems that season four was initially only contracted for 13 episodes, so Sailing's response was, that if they went beyond the initial 13 episodes, then it's something he would look into. But as always with Sailing, the quality of the script came above any potential profit, and in his reply he wrote, 
there is also the constant risk of whether or not a proper storyline can be developed so that you get a valid drama without the obvious inclusion of a specific place that's there for the sake of its inclusion. So when it was confirmed that the network would order more shows than the 13 contracted, Rod Serling approached Charles Beaumont, but there was a clause that said, if the script didn't work out, Beaumont was obligated to write another free of charge. Now it seems from unlocking the door to a television classic by Martin Grams Jr., that this arrangement that Rod Serling made with Beaumont was a little different from the usual one. And Boris Kaplan wrote to Serling and he said, Apart from the financial agreement by Cayuga Productions, in connection with this deal, I must say that it would be most unorthodox for Charlie Beaumont to report to you directly with his material and bypass or ignore Bert Granite, who has been contracted by CBS to produce the final block of five shows. In my opinion, this is an untenable and unprofessional position in which to place a producer, and must perforce weaken his effectiveness as far as the show is concerned. Now if I'm understanding Martin Grams Jr.'s passage on this in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, Rod Sailing made this strange arrangement that would bypass the producer in a way to protect Beaumont because he documents that there was an extraneous script conference that Beaumont had to ordeal just days before. So it seems Sailing gave him the option of writing two scripts and being able to get help on them. So I'm not 100% sure I understand that, but this is the point where Beaumont brought in Jerry Saul to assist with the script. And Jerry Saul says of Beaumont, he was able to come up with an idea and sell it. But beyond the fact that these museum people were murderers, he had no story. And instead of setting out the story, we really just chewed the fat. He seemed to waver and talk about other things in the story. It was rather unsettling for me. He said, it's up to you how you do this. So I did it and it didn't take very long. And there's a little bit more on this in The Twilight Zone Companion, and in that, Saul says, one of the men in the script is the man that gave Chuck the idea for the script itself, Albert W. Hicks, the axe murderer. So we got talking about it. Well, supposing that someone had an exhibit wherein this murderer was, and he came alive, and did all this, and then went back to the exhibit after he had committed the murder, the police would never be able to find him. This is the way that all our minds went. Then we decided to change that and make it they were all murderers. This is the murderers exhibit. In other words, all this evolved. And just to kind of wrap up this part of the subject, it seems that to most this was a secret. And the Twilight Zone companion says that during the shooting of the new exhibit, Saul visited the set and he says, here I am standing with Chuck Beaumont, and John Brahm, the director, comes up, puts his arm around him with the script that I did, and says, Chuck, you've done it again. And here I am, standing right next to Chuck, unable to say a word. Martin, what are you trying to say? Mr. Ferguson, you seem to have forgotten that these figures are the work of the great Henri Guillemont, the only ones he created outside of Europe. No, I haven't forgotten that. Mr. Ferguson! I want to buy them. That's ridiculous. I don't think I could bear it if these figures were destroyed. It would, it would be like losing five close friends. I won't destroy them, Martin. I give you my word. But, but where would I store them? I could put them in my basement. Yes, it's a perfect place. Oh, for heaven's sake, Martin. What, what would Emma say to having the figures of five famous murderers in her basement? Emma wouldn't mind. She would understand. And I would put an air conditioner in there. I tell you that. And a heater for the colder days. I would take care of them. Just as I always have. So with the Wax Museum soon to be closing, the obvious thing for Martin to do is to take them home. Well, you would, wouldn't you? But who exactly is he taking home? 
Well, the trivia for this episode in our main texts here tends to be geared more towards the situation with Charles Beaumont, so there actually isn't a huge amount of trivia, so we'll take a couple of detours here to see who exactly he is bringing home. And we'll start with the ones who don't actually get their hands dirty in the episode, and that's Burke and Hare. Now Burke is played by Robert McCord, the Twilight Zone's most prolific bit player, with a massive 32 credits on IMDb, but in reality, the number is actually 67 appearances, sometimes having more than one role as an extra in the same episode. So apart from Sailing himself, nobody has been in more episodes than Robert McCord, and here is played by Billy Beck. In the early 19th century, Edinburgh in Scotland was one of the leading places in Europe for anatomical study, but to study anatomy, you need to have a dead body. So on November 29th, 1827, Donald, a lodger in Hare's house, died of dropsy shortly before receiving a quarterly army pension while owing four pounds in back rent. And after Hare complained about the financial loss to Burke, they decided to sell Donald's body to one of the local autonomists. Now a coffin was actually made for the burial, but when he was put in it, Burke and Hare opened it and removed the body, which they hid under the bed, and they filled the coffin with bark from a local tanner's and resealed it. So after the coffin was removed for burial, they took the corpse to Edinburgh University, where they looked for a purchaser, and according to Burke's later testimony, they asked for directions to Professor Monroe, but a student sent them to Dr. Knox's premises in Surgeon's Square, and they sold the body for seven pounds and ten shillings. And when they left, one of Dr. Knox's assistants told them that they would be glad to see them again when they had another body to dispose of. So why wait for a dead body to land in your lap when you can just kill someone and sell their body? So William Burke and William Hare were convicted of 16 murders in Edinburgh in 1828. So I spoke about the brief history of wax museums at the beginning of the show, and obviously there is much more to them than that, but I do find it quite an interesting subject. Do I want to go and look at a bunch of celebrity wax recreations? Sure, that's fine. It's a bit of fun. But do I want to go to the Chamber of Horrors, the murderer's room, or whatever else you want to call it? Absolutely. Maybe it's the horror movie fan in me, or perhaps it's just the morbid fascination that many of us have with the dark side of humanity. But what also interests me is the act of doing these things at all making statues of murderers for our own entertainment. So where is that line between who you can create and who you can't? As we've just heard, these were despicable people. Could you imagine a statue being made of a murderer from recent memory? I think everyone would think it in bad taste, but it seems that with time, these figures move from memory into legend and legend into myth, and the likes of Dr. Crippen, and especially Jack the Ripper, have been so fictionalised by now, that you would almost think they are creations, like Sherlock Holmes. Well, Emma, here they are. Landrum is in here. Jack the Ripper is in here. Oh, Emma, Emma, it's going to be like opening Christmas presents. I didn't think they were going to be so big. Oh, well, no, that's just the boxes. The figures themselves are as big as we are. So who wouldn't want statues of some of the most despicable murderers in history in their basement? Well, Martin's wife, Emma, for a start, and she is played by Margaret Field, and she was born Margaret Morley in 1922, and there isn't a massive amount of information out there about her other than she was a hard-working actor of the day with 96 credits to her name. 
But if we look at her resume as a whole, even though she lived until 2011, at this point in her career when she did the Twilight Zone, her career was beginning to wind down a bit. Now she was very busy in the 1940s and 1950s, but after this appearance, she only had another seven roles by the time she retired in 1973. And if she seems familiar to you though, perhaps there is a hint of a famous daughter about her, the actress Sally Field. And I think she does just fine in this episode. Obviously the Twilight Zone has a bit of a history of the kind of nagging wife type character. But I think Margaret Field plays Emma with a nice balance here, you know? She is obviously exasperated by what's going on in her house. But she also has a real care for her husband. She doesn't just complain at him all the time. There's a real core there where she's concerned about him. Concerned that this obsession is overtaking him. And she's right. And our main character here, Martin Lombard Sinescu, is played by Martin Balsam. Now we have seen him before in The Twilight Zone, way back in Season 1, in the episode The 16mm Shrine. So how much of a bio I did on him back then, 10 years ago, is anyone's guess. So there's no harm in paying him a little visit again. Because in Twilight Zone terms, he might not have the number of episodes of a Burgess Meredith or a Jack Klugman under his belt in the original series, but he tops up his Twilight Zone and sailing resume in other ways. First and foremost, he played the part of Dr. Gillespie in that backdoor Twilight Zone pilot, The Time Element, in 1968, which aired on the Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse. And then there are his classic Twilight Zone episodes, the 16mm Shrine and the new exhibit, but he comes back to the Twilight Zone in the 1980s series in two stories called Personal Demons and Voices in the Earth. And he was born in 1919 in New York and his story as an actor is a classic case of catching the bug and then pursuing the dream. He first started acting in high school and after being called up to serve in the Second World War, he worked as an usher in the famous Radio City Music Hall while he trained at the Actors Studio in New York. And then Broadway came next and then television. And after impressing the master of suspense himself, Alfred Hitchcock, in a couple of episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, he was awarded a big part in the classic and groundbreaking Psycho. And in a way that is the story of Martin Balsam's career. He was the quintessential hard-working actor of the day and many more days to come. And once he found movie success, he didn't turn his nose up at these television roles came his way. One day he might be appearing in a movie like Cape Fear with Gregory Peck and Robert Mitchum. The next day he'd be in an episode of Wagon Train. And later in life he fell in love with the country of Italy and spent his remaining years there, but even then he still took parts in Italian productions. I think everyone will have seen something with Martin Balsam in at some point. And I'm sure there are Martin Balsam roles out there where he explores the full range of his abilities in very different ways. But to my mind and my memory and the things that I've seen him in personally, which is mostly from his later television work, he is usually just that very dependable, straight-ahead actor whose roles don't deviate too much from Martin Balsam, the man. And I don't mean that in an insulting way. I think he is a very good actor and chose roles that suited him. Which is why I think I enjoy what he does here in the new exhibit so very much. This is a role that could have easily been a bit of a scenery chewer. But Balsam's journey from enthusiastic and slightly eccentric to full on insane is such a delicate slope that it's barely perceptible. Before you know it, he is completely mad. And I love the scene later on where he berates Jack the Ripper for leaving blood on his knife after he's killed his wife. And I think any of us who have a slightly obsessive hobby where we collect things or start podcasts or any number of things that walk the tightrope between enjoyment and obsession 
are not necessarily put off by Martin's initial reluctance to just let these things go. You know, we put our books and magazines in acid-free bags with backing boards, or our collectible action figures in specially designed cases. Martin's are just that bit bigger and a bit creepier. And as he descends that slope into insanity, and we eventually have to condemn him for what he's done, it's not because he was always a despicable character, because actually, he was quite likeable, and I think anyone who has a slightly obsessive passion for certain cultish things can at least see part of themselves in Martin at the beginning of the episode. Honestly, Martin, you've been paying more attention to these murderers than you ever did to me. Oh, Emma, that's not true. Then why do you spend every minute of the day and night down here? Don't you see, this is the work of Guimont. It's a trust. Why, they're masterpieces. Oh, right, so they're masterpieces. You told me they'd only be here for a few days, but they've been here for weeks, don't you realize that? I've been nice about it, Martin. You can't say that I haven't. But how long am I going to be locked out of my own basement? So with the figures in the basement, we are now set up, and there's about 30 minutes of the episode to go. Now I do like stories where we witness someone's descent into madness, but there also has to be something else going on. There has to be some opposition to Martin. And I guess when things start to get murderous, we also need more people for him to kill. So we get the character of Dave, who is the brother of Martin's wife Emma, and he's played by an actor called William Mims. So I think this is a good place to talk about that favourite season 4 topic, episode length. Now like I said, I like a nice slow burn character piece, especially in horror movies, films like Christmas Evil or Maniac, where an unhinged person descends into murder. So I do like this setup, and I like Martin as the focus. But it's when we leave the house to meet Dave that I think the episode does start to run out of steam a little bit. I think if it was a 23 minute episode, Dave would be the first thing to go. And perhaps his wife Emma could have been more of an opposition to him, the kind of role that Dave takes. Emma? Emma, you down there? Emma, you down here? Emma? 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 I like how the episode stages this kill. It was set up from the scene earlier on when Martin was working in the wax museum and he had a gag set up where he would step on a switch that would cause Jack the Ripper to turn towards him with his knife, and Martin would duck. So at this point, we just assume that when she goes down to the basement in the middle of the night to turn off the air conditioner, that she simply stood on the same switch. So let's go down the rabbit hole a little again, and meet our next waxwork. Perhaps in terms of infamy, the granddaddy of all of these people is Saucy Jack himself, Jack the Ripper. And here he is played by David Bond who cuts quite the imposing figure as Jack. Now Jack the Ripper killed five women in Whitechapel, London in 1888. Now I say five women, but there are possibly more. The five that are attributed to him are called the Canonical Five. But there are several more potential victims too that weren't immediately linked to him. The common factor in Jack's killings was mutilation, and Wikipedia describes the aftermath of the killing of one of his victims, Catherine Eddowes, as follows. Those of a squeamish disposition, please skip forward about 30 seconds. So Eddowes' body was found in Mitre Square in the city of London, three quarters of an hour after the discovery of one of his other victims, Elizabeth Stride. Her throat was severed and her abdomen ripped open by a long, deep and jagged wound 
before her intestines had been placed over her right shoulder. The left kidney and the major part of the uterus had been removed and her face had been disfigured with her nose severed, her cheeks slashed and cuts measuring a quarter of an inch and half an inch respectively vertically incised through each of her eyelids. And the police surgeon who conducted the post-mortem on her body said that in his opinion these mutilations would have taken at least five minutes to complete. Even though he doesn't talk or move or do anything, I do think that David Bond really does cut a great imposing figure as Jack the Ripper. You kind of wish that maybe he had played the part for real. Now an episode of television about a wax museum wasn't that unusual at the time. In fact, it was staggeringly common. Now in the last episode, I read the story The Waxwork by Edward Burridge. Now this episode isn't based on that, but there is a similar device of the waxworks not truly being alive and their deeds actually being in someone else's imagination. But the fascination with waxworks didn't end in literature. The small screen was replete with episodes of television, especially anthology television, that used waxworks as their theme. In April 1959, Alfred Hitchcock Presents actually adapted the waxwork by Edward Burridge. Good evening, Mr. Houston. I trust that everything is to your liking, and I hope that you will be comfortable locked in here with my little creatures. Locked in? What do you mean? I mean, who said anything about being locked? But my dear Houston... You could hardly expect me to leave these these valuable creatures of mine unlocked. Well, of course I'll be here. Oh, but I'm afraid that they... I, I, I know it sounds silly, but I have a kind of a funny feeling about being closed in. See, once when I was... Uh... Claustrophobia? Yeah. Yeah, I... Something like that, I guess. The morbid fear of being in confined places. That's too bad. Well, I suppose we'd best forget the whole thing. No, 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 I can't do that. I... All right, all right, I'll stay. And in January 1962, the psycho writer Robert Block wrote an episode of Boris Karloff's thriller called Waxworks, and it concerns a travelling wax museum, but wherever it turns up, people seem to die. And not only that, but they seem to die in the same manner that the subjects of the wax exhibits killed their real-life victims with. Sounds familiar. And there are examples of this in numerous television shows, but also movies. In 1940, the detective Charlie Chan tackled an escaped convict hiding out in a wax museum that contained exhibits like Jack the Ripper and Henry Landrieu. In 1953, the great Vincent Price starred in House of Wax as the proprietor of a wax museum who is seemingly murdered in a fire, only to emerge again with a new wax exhibit and a very particular way of creating new ones. So there is just something about these places that seems to feed the imagination of writers, and I get it completely. Waxworks themselves are made to imitate life, but in a way, they imitate death more, human-shaped figures devoid of movement or spark, and when you combine that with fiction, there are a multitude of uses for them. People pretending to be waxworks, people being murdered to make waxworks, waxworks coming alive, people imagining them coming alive, the list goes on and on. And maybe these places don't really hold the same fascination in the digital age, or maybe the story possibilities were mined so thoroughly that they're not quite as common as they used to be. But the fact that stories about them were so prevalent, I can understand that completely. Now with his wife Emma buried in the basement, Martin has to go about the business of covering up her disappearance. What is it? Emma came to see me yesterday. Oh, yes, I, uh, I I know. She told me. She did? 
All right, that'll, that'll make things easier. Where'd she go, by the way? Oh, she took a trip. A trip? Where? To see my sister. Uh-huh. You two have an argument? Well, everything's settled now. Well, I'm certainly glad to hear that. She was sure upset when she talked to me. Yes, I know. You've got to admit, you, you didn't treat her square. You brought those dummies here and kept her out of her own basement. It's all been changed. <laughs> well, I guess I had you pegged all wrong, Marty. You got rid of them? Yes. Must have been a pretty hot night last night, huh? What do you mean, hot? Pretty hot for a bunch of wax dummies, huh? <laughs> I really enjoy this aspect of the episode, and I think Martin Balsam does some of his best work here. If you've ever watched any true crime shows or news reports where a person has killed their partner and then tries to cover it up, but they are found out and convicted of the crime, it's fascinating to go back to those early news reports to watch them speaking while they were trying to maintain that lie. And often you will look at them and you can tell that they are given out all of these signals from day one that they were lying. And it's especially obvious in the case of Martin here because he's trying to just make out that everything's okay. She's gone to his sister's. It's a lie that he's always going to get caught out on, eventually. But Dave isn't buying it, and he goes down to the basement to investigate, only to fall prey to the acts of Albert Hicks. Now Albert Hicks is played by Bob Mitchell, and at the beginning of the episode when Martin introduces him, he says that he was a gentle man, and asks what made him go mad, why did he change, but in reality... This isn't true. The incident that Martin describes where Hicks kills three of the crew on a boat that he was on was purely for financial gain, and the likelihood is they weren't his first killings either. In some texts, he's credited as being one of the forefathers of the New York gangster. But the crime that became his undoing is described on Wikipedia like this. Hicks was hired as a deckhand on the oyster sloop A. E. Johnson out of New York City, which he knew to be carrying a large amount of cash for buying oysters in Virginia to be transported back to New York. There were four men on the boat, including Captain George H. Bear, brothers Oliver and Smith Watts, and Hicks himself. It was nighttime as the boat neared the Narrows. Captain Bear and Oliver retired to their quarters to sleep. Smith had night duty, and Hicks joined him on deck, politely taking a turn on the wheel. Hicks saw something and pointed it out to Smith, asking what it was. Smith didn't see anything. Hicks said look again. Smith turned his back, and Hicks grabbed a sea axe and struck a blow to the back of his head, felling him to the deck. Hearing the commotion, Oliver Watts stuck his neck out through the cabin hatchway. Hicks struck again, decapitating Watts. Hicks recalled that the body slowly sagged downward and the head rolled onto the deck, now sprayed with the blood of the two brothers. Hicks carried the bloodied axe into Captain Bear's cabin, who was by now alert. The captain was a tall, strong man and the ensuing fight lasted a while with Bear almost strangling Hicks to death. Eventually, Hicks managed to slash the captain with the axe, slicing off half his face, including an eyeball and nose left hanging on the axe blade. Exhausted from the struggle of killing Bear, Hicks searched the living quarters for loot. When Hicks returned to the deck, he saw a movement and was shocked to see Smith on his feet moving towards him. He believed it might be an apparition, Hicks forced the injured man overboard, but Smith grasped a rail and hung on with a death grip. Hicks swung the axe and chopped off his fingers, which fell onto the deck, and the rest of Smith slipped into the water. Hicks then threw the other bodies and the axe overboard. 
and he was one of the last people executed in the US for piracy. But back in our episode, Mr. Ferguson, the proprietor of the Wax Museum, drops by with some good news. Martin, I, I can't keep it from you any longer. What, sir? The best news in the world. Martin, old friend, when I told you that nobody wanted to buy these figures, I was being too pessimistic. The fact is, somebody does want to, but not just somebody. The Marchand Museum. Oh. Didn't you hear me? Yes. Marchands. In Brussels. I can't imagine why, but... Aren't you pleased? Yes. Mr. Ferguson, look at the record. I must say, Martin, you have kept them up well. Yes. Now, you see, this needs fixing in here. The threads are starting to fall out. As a matter of fact, I think they all need new clothes. Now, obviously, Martin doesn't want the figures to go, and it's not long before Mr. Ferguson falls prey to the rope of Landrew. But what makes this murder different is that we actually see Landrew move. Now, Henry Desiree Landrew is played by Milton Parsons, and Landrew killed at least seven women between December 1915 and January 1919, but the total is likely to be higher. Now, when you see pictures of him, he's not exactly Cary Grant, but he had a reputation as being something of a charmer, and his particular MO was to place adverts in newspaper Lonely Hearts columns claiming that he was a lonely widower looking to marry. And as his luck would have it, World War I had left hundreds of Parisian women as widows. So while he may not have been Cary Grant, selecting his targets was not difficult. He would woo them, get access to their finances, and then kill them, disposing of their bodies by burning them in his stove. And when he was eventually caught, he was sentenced to death by guillotine, and I believe that his head is still on display at the Museum of Death in Hollywood. So when Martin goes down to the basement and finds Mr. Ferguson, the wax figures start to advance on him. Now in the Twilight Zone Companion, Mark Zickry says, in the new exhibit, Martin Balsam does an excellent job playing a quiet little man with a most grisly hobby. As for the wax figures of the murderers, these are played by live actors, shown still frame in close-ups. The wax and makeup and their ability to stand very still creates a convincing illusion that they are actually inanimate wax. Where the story falls down is in its denouement. Although we see Jack the Ripper kill Martin's wife, Hicks, his brother-in-law, and Landrew, his boss, at the end, the murderers reveal that it is Martin who committed the murders. This just does not wash. Had there been a greater subtlety in the murder scenes merely suggesting that the murders were committed by the figures without actually showing them, this ambiguity might have allowed for such a conclusion, but such is not the case. I can see where he's coming from, but I don't actually agree with it because I like the escalation that the episode has. Jack the Ripper's killing does have some ambiguity to it because it could have been caused by the switch that made the figure move that we saw at the beginning of the episode. Now Albert Hicks killing is a little less ambiguous but we still don't actually see Hicks move at that point. It's only close to the climax that we see Landrew move and I suppose there is an argument to say that maybe they should have kept that a bit more ambiguous as well but I don't particularly need it, I'm kind of happy with what we have here. So as Martin descends more and more into madness, the more animated the figures become. I find the new exhibit to be a refreshingly different Twilight Zone episode. I suppose had it been on Alfred Hitchcock Presents, or something similar, it wouldn't seem out of place. I don't think it's uniquely Twilight Zone, but it's nice occasionally to have those episodes that mix it up a bit, especially when they're more horror-centric ones like this. Now this is an episode where all of the ingredients just work for me. Waxworks belong to that wonderful American culture of roadside attractions and showmanship. 
the World's Fair, or things like Ripley's Believe It or Not, and sometimes they are wonderful, but other times a bit tacky or rough around the edges, but that's part of their charm. Apart from a few eye blinks that probably wouldn't have been visible on a 1960s television set, I think the decision to have real people play the wax figures, rather than have them actually be wax figures, is a masterstroke. It really adds this beautiful, eerie quality to the episode, and these definitely are figures you wouldn't want to spend the night alone with, and it's something that keeps a first-time viewer off guard. We never really know what type of story we're in. Is it about the psychological breakdown of a man, or is it about wax figures that come to life and kill people? And because of the nature of the story, in a way, it's both. The episode has its cake and eats it. It has the fantasy of the figures coming to life, but it has a plausible explanation for it too. And when you layer into that a slightly psycho-esque storyline and a powerhouse performance by Martin Balsam, by the time we actually find out that the new exhibit is referring to the wax statue that's been made of him, it brings the story round full circle in a beautiful and satisfying way. It might not have that Twilight Zone element of the unexplained, but I'll let the episode off for being bold enough and cheeky enough to give away the twist in the title of the episode all along, that Martin himself is the new exhibit. The new exhibit became very popular at Marchand's, but of all the figures, none was ever regarded with more dread than that of Martin Lombard Senescu. It was something about the eyes, people said. It's the look that one often gets after taking a quick walk through the Twilight Zone. So now we can cross the new exhibit off our list of Twilight Zone episodes. So not much else going on in the Twilight Zone world that I know of at the moment. I guess there's not much going on in a lot of things. But um, but I want to thank you, the listeners, for kind of sticking with me in a bit of a drier spell for the podcast. I think the lockdown situation here in the UK has, you know, for some people it might give them more time. Uh, to work on something like a podcast for me it's given me less so thank you for sticking with me and rest assured if i'm not putting an episode out i'm just chipping away at it in the background so i hope everyone is well and happy and safe um i also want to thank my patreon supporters for keeping the lights on for the show and this month i've got three new ones i want to thank matt cook for coming on board uh, also curtis and Dan Jones, thank you so much for joining over on Patreon. Uh, I also want to thank some iTunes reviewers, EGM4Pack. I can't remember whether I mentioned you last time, but I will say it again just in case. And up to late 64 and also Eddie and Haymarket, thank you for your kind reviews. And ARP0213. Um, I just wanted to comment something on your review. Thank you for your kind words about the show and saying that I'm an amazing host. I, I appreciate that. And the check is in the post. Um, but I did want to comment on something that you said in your episode. You said that when the new series come out, the Jordan Peele episodes, uh, that you would prefer that I do them solo because you like uh, the podcast as a solo podcast. Um, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that, you know, we all have different tastes on those kind of things and it was something that I did consider but there's also a few other things that have to be kind of taken into consideration in that situation now a solo podcast takes longer to do than a two-person podcast when a two-person podcast is done you basically turn on the microphones and you talk but a solo one it takes a bit more work to put together now I think, and you know, people might think differently, but I think when the new episodes come out, I don't want to hang around, you know, I don't want to spend three weeks working on an episode of it. So by the time I've finished doing uh, the new season, it's just taken me so long that people are like, come on, let's get back to the classic show. The, f the series finished ages ago. So when they did it weekly, I wanted to get an episode out weekly. And then when they dumped them all in one go last time round, 
again, I didn't want to be doing, you know, a load of solo reviews that were taking me time to do. And most people had probably watched it within two weeks or something. So there is that to take into consideration. It's just easier on me to do it with a guest host. And, and I think the other part of it as well. Now, if, if, there were, if this were a business and I was doing it and making money on it, you know, it would be 99% about pleasing my audience. But I think when you do something like this as a hobby, which I am, where thankfully I have my Patreon supporters so it doesn't cost any money and there's a bit left over to save up for new equipment and that kind of thing. But it's not really making me money in the sense of a job, it's a hobby. So I think when you're doing it for a hobby, yes, you want to please your audience, but you've got to please yourself as well, because otherwise, if it's not fun to do, or it's too much hard work to do, it does become a bit of a chore. So when those new things come out, you know, I don't have anyone in my life on a day-to-day -day basis who watches the show, you know. I've spoke about the Twilight Zone situation here in England quite a lot, how it is, you know, not as uh, broadcast as it should be. So when it does come out, I want to talk to my friends about it, you know. I want to talk to them about it on the podcast because that makes me happy. So in that sense, I am pleasing myself. And I know some listeners might prefer the solo format but the solo format will come back for the for the classic episodes anyway but for those new ones um i'm gonna stick gonna stick to my guns on that and keep doing those with friends if we ever get a season three <laughs> there's no word on that at the moment so so thank you for your kind words but i hope that explains why i do it the way i do okay so let's go over to some feedback and the first piece is from dave and he first talks about uh, the last episode that we covered i dream of genie so i'll speak to you next time bye for now this is dave from germany again and oh tom you haven't even seen the worst of season four but i'm sure others will tell you so as well now, I have to say I agree with you wholeheartedly on this episode. It's downright painful to watch. Absolutely excruciating. Now, to me, Season 4 was definitely more interesting and more enjoyable to watch than Season 5. But its bad episodes were downright painful to watch. Due to the longer runtime. Still, I think that Season 4 had more fresh ideas and overall better stories. And... It has been given a bit of a bad rap, and I don't think it deserves that rap just because a couple of its episodes are bad. You could say the same about seasons, about any other season really. It's just that there, as you mentioned, they go by quicker. But proportionally, really, it has a very high batting average, if you know what I mean. And I know that you know what I mean. Anyway, I'm really looking forward to your thoughts on the next episode, which is one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes, although it's kind of atypical, because there is no clear supernatural element in it. Anyway, looking forward to your episode on the new exhibit. Stay safe, stay healthy, goodbye. Hi Tom, Kieran here. I uh, just wanted to offer some thanks for featuring my clip on the last episode. Uh, and also thanks for responding. It was really cool to hear what you had to say um, about my points. Um, it's always really cool to have discourse about this sort of thing. Um, you know, I really, I enjoy talking about this kind of thing. So it was cool to hear what you had to say as well. Um, and of course, I know in the end, you know, we all are on the side of good here. Um, I also wanted to offer some thoughts about the, the next episode, uh, the new exhibit. So first off, we have Martin Balsam, who is, you know, we've seen him before in the 16mm Shrine. Um, to me, he is just this excellently natural actor, uh, whether he's portraying this enthusiasm and passion for his job in the beginning, or whether it's kind of the madness and the desperation that he descends into by the end. Um, I just find it 
you know, like I said, so natural and um, enjoyable to watch, right? He's, he's like a real person, and that's sometimes not what we get from our Twilight Zone actors. Um, uh, I found it really interesting to, or I find it every, every time I watch it, um, that he's got this sort of idolization of, of these characters or these figures that he's talking about, and it's almost like he feels empathy for them. And to me, that's kind of foreshadowing what happens in the end. Um, you know, whether you believe that he is the murderer or not, um, when he says that Hicks is, is a gentleman and Burke and Hare are, have endured agonies and Landreau, again, agony, he was driven to kill. Uh, Jack the Ripper felt torment. Um, you know, he, it's like he feels empathy for these people. And to me, that suggests that he is the same in a way. You know, you and I as non-murderers would never empathize with Jack the Ripper. But there he is doing it. And maybe that's just part of his job. Maybe, you know, whatever. But to me, it seems so genuine that it raises questions in my mind. Anyways, um, the big question of why in this episode... I also find really interesting, you know, um, are the figures, um, driving him to murder people in his life because the figures are carrying the spirits of the murderers and they want the killing to continue and they're using him as a vehicle or him as someone to frame, um, you know, or is Martin just a guy who, you know, the world is passing him by. He's no, he's no longer feeling needed. Uh, the museum that he works at is being replaced by a supermarket. People are no longer scared or enticed by a chamber of horrors type thing because they've become desensitized to the horrors of the world because of World War II and stuff like that. Other traumatic events happening in the world. Um, you know, all these questions, that's kind of what makes the Twilight Zone great in a lot of cases. You know, we have those cases of cosmic justice um, where, you know, like a good person is rewarded or a bad person is punished. But then you have this kind of middle road where we don't really know what's going on. And that's not something I really understood until I was uh, emailing with you and you pointed that out to me that I was referring to it as randomness, but it's not really random. We just don't really understand it. And to me, that's okay. You know, it's, it's, it's okay to not understand. Um, I find that almost more entertaining and more enticing. Um, and finally, shout out to Margaret Field, who plays Emma. Uh, she kind of steps out of that typical Twilight Zone wife, um, hysterical character that we often see. Um, you know, she stands up to her husband and she holds up the electrical bill and, you know, like says that they don't have money anymore. And anytime she actually gets upset, it seems like it is justified and it's not overblown. Um, you know, it's not a great look for the show that, you know, one of the first like strong wife characters we see is murdered, but it is what it is, right? It's a part of the story. Um, anyways, um, you know, overall, the new exhibit is uh, maybe not my number one or my top 25 or anything, uh, but it's certainly not one that I'm going to skip if it comes up. Um, so I do enjoy this one, and uh, I'm curious to see what everyone else has to say about it. Talk to you next time. Thanks. Bye. Rod Serling, creator of The Twilight Zone, will tell you about next week's story after this message. If you want to get your thoughts onto the show, then email a clip of about five minutes or less to Tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com if you want to talk about any of the episodes in season four or our next episode coming up. So let's go over to Rod Serling to find out what that is. And now, Mr. Serling. Next on Twilight Zone, a trip back into time with Albert Salmi, John Anderson, and guest star Julie Newmar. But this trip is an offbeat, very adventuresome, and totally unexpected itinerary. It's called Of Late I Think of Cliffordville. You send me back in time, send me back to Cliffordville, but I want to look exactly as I did then. That's number one. Agreed. Number two, 
I want to have a memory of everything that's occurred in the last 50 years. I don't want that memory impaired one bit. Check again, Mr. Feathersmith. I want it to happen right away. Clifford-Bell. This stop is Clifford-Bell. Clifford? <laughs> the devil you say! <laughs> 